This is episode number 216, Sports Psychology and How to Communicate with Your Kids as a Parent and Youth Coach with Dr. Jennifer Etnayer. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. And learning how to compete means that you understand the value of winning, but that you understand also that that's not the only thing that has value, that you recognize that what also has value in sport or academics or any other performance venue is making strides towards reaching my potential. I want you to challenge yourself at a level that's appropriate for you so that you are always working to improve that you are always learning how to give full effort in the face of success and in the face of possible failure. This week's episode is something near and dear to my heart. It's talking about sports psychology and mindset. And I've spent over a decade studying this on my own, studying the sports psychology, the positive psychology, and the mindfulness sides of both of these. So I love conversations like these. I write exclusive content for my newsletter each week that is only published in my newsletter. And the thought of the week is often something along the lines of personal development or mindset or productivity. And I really enjoy every single Sunday sitting down and spending some time writing these things. And I also offer a journal stem and just something to ask yourself that you may not consider on a regular basis. And I think asking ourselves the right questions is really important for personal growth. You can sign up at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter to get premier content every Sunday. And one more thing before we get into this week's guest, I am still doing my free Facebook group, the Plant Powered Academy. And it's been so cool to be able to share recipes and tips and just answer people's questions about plant-based nutrition. And you don't have to be vegan or plant-based to join. You just have to be interested in adding more plants. And that's what it's about. It's not about labels or polarization or anything like that. It's just for people to support one another. And that is the most important thing whenever we're making changes to our habits is our community and the people that we support ourselves with. So I created this group just so if people need a little bit of a push or just people to feel comfortable talking about their diet with, I wanted them to have a space. So that's Plant Powered Academy on Facebook and Facebook groups. And I also have an Instagram, Plant Powered Academy One. So let's talk about today's guest. Have you ever thought about sports psychology and how to communicate with your kids as a parent or youth coach? And this is a really interesting space because the way that we communicate with our kids about sports, about success, about goal setting, about coming up short, those conversations can affect your kids for the rest of their life. And something that my dad used to say to me was, it's not can't, it's won't. I'd say I can't do something. And he would tell me, You're, you can do it. It's a choice whenever you say you can't do it. You won't do it. You're choosing not to do it. And that's not specifically related to sports, but that was something that stuck with me about the mindset of taking on challenges. So I think that you guys will really enjoy this week's guest because many people listening to the show have kids. And even if you don't, applying these techniques to your own life is also really, really valuable. So first of all, most youth coaches are volunteers. And it's amazing that so many people generously spend their time developing children as athletes and in team environments. However, as a listener of the show, you know I'm passionate about the impact of words we use, the things that we say to ourselves, and the things we say to others. And as a new mom, I'm really interested in learning how to communicate with kids. And there's some books that I'm really interested in reading that I have on my shelf. And mental toughness doesn't only apply to adults, and we get a lot of our patterns as children. And most of the challenges that come up where we have an opportunity to practice self-talk and how we want to view things that happen to us is through challenges, whether it be in sports, whether it be academically, whether it be in relationships. And I truly believe that sports is a microcosm for life and all of the things that you learn about yourself and relationships can be applied to everyday life just as easily. So enter our guest, Jennifer Etnayer, PhD. She is the author of two books relating to sports psychology and how to interact with kids in sports, especially as a coach. The books are titled 
Bring Your A Game, and Coaching for the Love of the Game. Her books offer constructs of the best ways to give praise, her opinion on discipline, how to keep girls playing sports longer, and helping children set goals and contextualize success and failure. And there's way more than that in there, but those are just some key things that I really enjoyed. There's also a different relationship with how you communicate with your kids if you're the parent versus if you're the coach and finding a good medium with that. Dr. Etnire's research focuses on the cognitive benefits of physical activity. She is a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine and the National Academy of Kinesiology. She is a distinguished professor at UNC Greensboro, and she grew up playing soccer. Some topics discussed in this podcast and things that you're going to walk away with today is how parents can support their kids without getting in the way of the coach, winning, losing, and how to talk about it, recognizing perfectionism when talking to kids, why early specialization in sports is not recommended, how to keep sports fun. We talked about trophies and rewards and when that's appropriate for sports. And we talked about the gender constructs of girls and boys in sports. And lastly, we talked about comparison, feedback, and confidence in young athletes. And again, even if you don't have kids, I really think that this would be valuable for you personally. And here is a quote from Jennifer Etnire to kick us off. A good youth coach is one who can reinforce the things that were done right during a competition, regardless of the outcome, and help better prepare the athletes for the next event. A good youth coach ensures that every practice, every competition, every communication is focused on all of the athletes having a positive and enjoyable experience. Now, we just got to thank our podcast sponsor before we start our conversation, and that is Sproutman. And man, these guys have been a game changer for me personally. I was really interested in sprouting, but I was admittedly too intimidated to do it. Like I didn't want to grow sprouts that maybe would give food poisoning, which is a funny myth. And I also thought that I would have to put in all this effort and that the sprouts just wouldn't grow because I tend to not have a green thumb. So Sprout Man has seeds that are organic and they have a 95% germination rate, meaning that if you do it right, and it's easy to do it right, that you're going to get a big yield of sprouts. And they have tons of different types of sprouts. You can have bean sprouts, you can do salad sprouts. There's just so many things that you can add to your diet. And sprouts are one of the most nutritionally dense things that you can possibly eat. They have so many valuable nutrients, 20 to 30 times that of regular vegetables. And my favorite way to sprout is using their hemp sprout bag. I just hang it off of one of the cabinets in my kitchen. It's super, super easy. But all you have to do is put the seeds inside of the hemp bag and you soak the hemp bag in just a bowl of water overnight while you go to bed to help the seeds germinate. And then after that, all you have to do is twice a day, soak the seeds for 30 seconds, once in the morning and once at night, and just let the bag hang in your kitchen. And after a few days, you will have a ton of sprouts that can be added to your salads. They can be used as a main course. If you listen to my podcast episode with Doug Evans, we talked all about sprouting and then his book, The Sprout Book, he has tons of recipes with sprouts. And I throw sprouts in my smoothies. So it's a really easy way to get all these extra nutrients into your diet. And it's easy and cheap to do on your own. So to do it, go to sproutman.com slash Sonia and you will help support the show by using my link. If you do sprout, make sure that you take a picture and share on social media because I would love to see your sprout yields. All right, so let's get into it today with Dr. Jennifer Etnire. Welcome to the show, Dr. Etnire. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's really cool to get to chat about youth sports as there's a lot of people listening to the show who were youth athletes, but they also have kids who are athletes. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I'm interested to learn more about you and, and your uh, listeners. Yeah, so the first time I even actually really thought about youth sports and like the, where I learned that most youth coaches are volunteers was... It was actually a podcast with Dr. Michael Gervais and he was interviewing somebody and they were talking about like how damaging it could be in the car ride home and the things that parents say to their kids after a game. Yeah, well, I actually have a um, student who just finished her master's degree with me and that was something that she was interested in looking at is the car ride home, but even broader than that, sort of the child's perspective of the parent's behaviors and the parent's awareness or lack thereof of their own behaviors, right? So really looking at the child's experience in the sports setting and the influence that parents have on that, which is 
mostly very positive, of course, but sometimes is more negative. Yeah. And I mean, I played soccer growing up and there was always the overzealous parent on the sidelines, like going crazy. And I guess my first question for you is how can parents be good, like spectators and supporters without getting in the way of coaching? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think I think there's a couple of pieces to that. I mean, I think the first is sort of the latter of what you said. The parent's role is not to coach. And so even if it's a volunteer coach, if that person is the person wearing the coach's hat, if you will, then it's their responsibility to sort of take over the child's experience while they're in the competition. The part where the parents really have an influence is what they're saying from the sidelines and what they say to their children before and after the competition. And so I think I think one of the first things that parents should do is to ask their child what they would like. I mean, it's funny. I'm a parent myself, and I I have to remind myself to say to them, okay, how would you like me to interact with you about your homework? How would you like me to interact with you around your soccer games? Do you want to talk about them before we go? Do you want to think about some personal goals you might set before we go? Or do you want me to just stand back? And when we look at the literature, the literature tells us that in a general sense, the kids want parents to be supportive and that's really kind of it. <laughs> like, they just want they just want the parents to support them. And surprisingly, they'll also say they want the parents to support the other children who are competing. They want them to be positive spectators who are cheering for everybody to play well and play hard. And that's sort of the end of it. I think that the nuanced part of that is what the word supportive means, because sometimes parents might think they're being supportive, but maybe they're being a little bit over the top or maybe they're not saying enough. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And where my master's student found the the biggest difference was in behaviors that are described as directive behaviors. So you hear this from the parents all the time, shoot the ball, play harder defense, score, pass, whatever. You know, there's all these directions coming from the sidelines. And in our study that we did, we found out that the children perceive that parents are doing more of that than the parents are aware that they're doing. And I, I think that, you know, sort of ties in with what you're saying. We're both doing more of it than we are aware of, but also our children might not find that supportive. They might find that inappropriate. They may not want us to coach from the sidelines. And that's what we're doing when we give out those kinds of advice. Yeah. And I was just thinking about, I'm an athlete and many people listening know that sports are a microcosm and a good test tube or petri dish for life. And the things that we learn on the field are the same things that we tend to apply in our jobs and our relationships and sports tends to bring those things to the surface a little bit faster than other things. So if a parent isn't necessarily supposed to stand in the way of a youth sports coach, but they still want to be teaching about the same types of topics, you know, setting goals at school, for example, or like how to communicate in a relationship with your friends, how can they do that without stepping on the toes of the coach? Well, okay, so some of that I would throw back on the coach, him or herself. So I think it's really important that youth sport coaches have a very open line of communication with parents so that they both know sort of what the expectations are. So I would be thrilled if my children's coaches would stay in close contact with me to tell me things about sort of, you know, this week, this is what we're working on in practice. This week, this is what I'm going to focus on in the competition because this is what we focused on in practice. It would help me to be more knowledgeable about sort of my child's experience with that coach. But I would also like to hear from that coach, you know, what other things are you doing with my child? Are you introducing topics like goal setting? Are you talking about how you control your energy levels as you go into a competition? Are, are you talking to children about whether they should be, you know, really pumped up or really calm and what's best for them? Or is that a place where you would welcome the help of the parents to really help the children think about their activities as go, they go into them? Now, I'm right now, it's, I sort of hesitated there because I'm thinking, well, if I'm talking about little kids, then the sports psych techniques that I just brought up are much less relevant because with little kids, I really just want them to have fun in their sport event. And I don't really want it to be something that, that we make work like by asking them to you know, prepare ahead of time and, and to evaluate after the competition. But if, you have, if you're talking about youth athletes who are committed to their sport and who are really interested in reaching their potential in sport, then those things become a little more relevant. And it's important to figure out if they're getting them from the coach or if that's something where a parent could maybe play a role in helping them think about goal setting and mental imagery and things like that. 
Yeah. And something that's really interesting with sports coaching in general is that probably most people think of it as technique, like technique and training and strategy, but the sports psych part of coaching is often overlooked. And, and many coaches, especially volunteer coaches, have never done the work themselves to even understand how to set goals or how to create a good competitive environment. So what's a good way for people as adults to start learning these things? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of resources out there, as I'm sure you're probably well aware, you know, just books that have been written for the lay public that are focused on sports psychology techniques. I wrote a book that's called Bring Your A-Game that was really specifically designed to make sports psychology techniques accessible to youth athletes. So it's really written for sort of the, the tweens and teenagers. That being said, if you can't find a better choice as an adult, it has all of the sports skills in it. And it's a good way to just get an introduction to a lot of these topics that, that we as sports psychologists know are critical to the sport experience, but a lot of people have not had exposure to. And what's interesting, I'll just add this too, the goal-setting literature that exists sort of in the business world isn't really different from the goal-setting literature in the sports psych world. So for your listeners, if you've had exposure to some of these, these techniques that we can use for performance enhancement in work or in academics, they translate very well to sport. And so goal setting, mental imagery, thinking about confidence building, the control of our energy levels as we approach different tasks, all of these things, you know, aren't only housed in sport, they're, they're housed in any kind of a performance venue. So I want to talk about winning, losing, keeping score, and how we talk about those things. Because People that listen to the show are probably familiar with Mindset by Carol Dweck because I talk about it a lot and talking about process over outcome and focusing on hard work and effort over just winning. But that's more difficult to talk to whenever you're talking to a kid because the way we communicate, as in your book, you communicate differently with youth than you do with adults. So how can people talk about winning and losing and, and all those different things with their kids? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's something I'm glad you've already been talking about a lot with your listeners because it's, I think it's one of the most important conversations for us to have with coaches and parents and children. And the book by Carol Dweck is a fantastic one for introducing the notion of how you focus on process and the things that we do to reach our goals while also having goals in mind, right? So that's where I think the challenge is. Like, if I'm playing a sporting event, my goal is to win. And if I'm playing against you, Sonia, your goal is also to win we're both not going to win, right? So how do I then cope with the, not likelihood, with the definite fact that if it's a one versus one or a team versus two, one team is going to win and the other team is not, right? So knowing that as we go into competition, how do we set the stage for parents and kids to maintain their focus on process? And I think one of the real keys is, actually comes back to this notion of goal setting. Thinking about what my goals are for my child in sport, right? My goals for my children playing soccer is not that they win every game. If it is that they win every game, then what I need to do is I need to make sure that they end up on a team of exceptional athletes and that they're in a league where they play teams that have terrible athletes because that's the only way I can make sure they win every single game, right? So what I want my children to get out of sport is learning how to compete. And learning how to compete means that you understand the value of winning, but that you understand also that that's not the only thing that has value. That you recognize that what also has value in sport or academics or any other performance venue is making strides towards reaching my potential. So I want my boys, I want my daughter to learn how to be competitive. And by that, what I mean is I want you to challenge yourself at a level that's appropriate for you so that you are always working to improve, that you are always learning how to give full effort in the face of success and in the face of possible failure. Because if you do those things, right, this is what I'm always trying to emphasize. If I have children, if I have a team of athletes or I have my own children or even for myself, if I keep working hard to reach my potential, if I keep giving full effort in the face of success or failure, and I continue to improve because of that, then the successes that have value, like winning, will begin to come. But even if they don't come, I can still be satisfied with my own effort. I'll know that I've done what I needed to do to feel successful. 
So what are some things that people can actually say to their kids? Like say their kid lost a bike race or they lost a tennis match or a soccer game and they're super bummed and they're like, uh, what, what can a parent say to help them? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it, we, we all are going to go through that a little bit. I think that initial response of feeling disappointed that we didn't get the outcome that we wanted. And, you know, if you're talking about athletes who are committed to set success in sport, they have to have that feeling. Otherwise, there's, I mean, that's part of what motivates you to continue to try hard and to continue to improve is that you don't like that feeling, right? But at the same time, we want to make sure that we put that feeling into perspective. And so, you know, what you can say to your child is, I think you should empathize first. I think you should say, I recognize that you're disappointed by the outcome. If you're talking to your child, then I would say, would you like to talk about that now or should we talk about it at some other time? Okay, imagine they say, I don't want to talk about it now. I just want to be upset. So maybe the next day we say, you know, hey, uh, you're probably still feeling a little disappointed about yesterday, but why don't we talk about it a little bit more? Like what happened? What did you observe? What did you think? And help them to focus on the process. Okay, you lost a competition. You lost a bike ride. You lost a tennis match, whatever it was. Let's think about that. Okay, what what does that mean exactly? Okay, did you do the preparatory work that you needed to in advance of this competition? Did you train hard? Did you work hard? Did you get proper rest, proper sleep, all of those things? When you were in that competition, did you execute your game plan the way that you intended to? Were you able to use the skills that you've been working on in practice? And when you were faced with adversity in that competition, how did you respond? And so I'm just making up ideas of things that could be relevant, but essentially you sort of walk the athlete through thinking about these are the pieces. You know, you don't win because you want to win. You don't win because there's some fate that's going to make you the winner. You win if you did all of these little tiny things that put you in a position where you could be the winner. And so we try to get the athlete to really focus on the things that lead into the competition itself. And I think this is a really interesting topic because there's people out there, most people, especially achievers, are have perfectionist tendencies. And they might say, well, I did all this hard work leading up to the event and I could have done more and I could have done more or I didn't do it perfectly or in the actual event, like I did my best, but it wasn't perfect. How can we talk to kids about perfectionism? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think I think that's something that is important to talk to with children early because that is something that can become somewhat fixed for people, you know, more trait-like than just, you know, varying from time to time. And I guess it's having that hard conversation with them that says perfectionism isn't a realistic goal. And so let's talk about what realistic goals are and what that means. And I, I think you bring up a really good point, Sonia, which is when I say that you have to do all of the process things to put things in place to win, I am not also saying that more is always better, right? I'm not also saying that more training is what you need or training harder. Sometimes, in fact, people can be more successful if they lighten up on their training a little bit and have a chance to recover so that they have the full energy they need, right? So they're not in an overtraining kind of a situation. So I think, you know, perfectionism is an unrealistic goal. Striving to do our best is a more realistic goal. But then also sort of recognizing and having a self-awareness of what it takes to be your best. So let me just say one more thing and then I'll pause. And that is just that for people who are lucky enough to work with coaches who are really invested in their success as athletes, I think that's partly the coach's responsibility. The coach is the person that I hope has a more big picture view so it can help the athlete to think, okay, I've been working really hard. I've been doing everything possible and I'm still not getting the successes that I want. I'm not getting the victories that I want. Well, then it's the coach's job to figure out, okay, then what do we need to do differently? What are we doing that's, you know, maybe it's strategic, maybe it's training regimen, maybe it's taking a break from a training regimen, maybe it's doing more, you know, if you're thinking about some endurance sports, maybe it's doing more land-based training, more strength training, speed training, you know, there's, but there's something that you might try to adjust if you think the athlete has the potential to have those successes and there's something that's amiss in the training. And it's interesting because a lot of the questions I'm asking, adults also struggle with too. So how can parents help their kids? You, you mentioned they can ask their, their, ask their children, like, how does this feel for you without projecting themselves or things they've gone through as an athlete or in life onto their kids, trying to understand their kid, but they understand their kid through their own lens of their own struggles. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a fair question, too. We probably all have a, a tendency to do that in interactions, either with our own children or with, with other adults. But I think, you know, just trying to really put yourself in that person's shoes, whether you're a coach talking to an athlete, adults talking to one another, or a parent talking to a child, trying to really put aside your own biases and experiences, although those, those might inform how you're trying to help the person you're working with, but you really want to let them have their own voice. And I mean, Sonia, again, I think you're bringing up something that's interesting to think about. We tend not to let children have their own voice. We tend as the parents to be pretty autocratic. You know, we're making the decisions. We're, in fact, at an early age with sport, that's how it starts, right? Why does your child, why, why is little Johnny playing soccer? Well, little Johnny's playing soccer because that's where his parents dropped him off, right? Like when he's at his youngest, he didn't choose to play soccer necessarily. That's it was convenient because his eight-year-old brother's also playing soccer, right? But his eight-year-old brother might have chosen after trying soccer and t-ball and gymnastics and flag football and, and whatever, right? But when you're talking about the littlest kids, they are there because we put them there. And we, I think as parents, I think it's really important that we just adapt as they're becoming more mature themselves. So if you're talking to an eight-year-old, that's different than how you talk to a 12-year-old. My children right now are teenagers, and so our conversations have really changed where I am not offering all the answers. Why would I want to offer all the answers? They've got things they have to figure out as they go forward. And we're trying to, we're trying to teach them to be more independent. And so part of that is by not, I hope I'm answering your question, Sonia, but part of that is by not sort of putting on them our baggage, but rather being there as an attentive listener who wants to hear about their experience and then we don't give them the answers, but we help them to figure out for themselves what the best next steps might be. I think that's great. And I have a six month old baby. So I'm really interested in the nature versus nurture and like how I can like stay out of the way enough so that he can, you know, become his own person, but supportive enough that I can give him tools that are going to help him. But I want to talk about early specialization. You, that was in your book. I've had David mm -hmm. Epstein on the show talking about his book Range. And many people think, oh, I just need my 10,000 hours or I need to start my kids. Like in, I, I live in Canada and people start their kids in hockey at a really, really young age because they think they need to. Otherwise, the kid's never going to make it. What are your thoughts on early specialization? I think most of the evidence speaks against it. And so when you look at countries, that use early specialization as a way to raise Olympic and world champions, you find out that they don't have any greater success than countries that don't use those same methods. I think looking at Norway is really insightful because in Norway, their youth sport at the country level, they have a national law that says that youth sport is essentially not competitive until you're 13. So prior to 13, there is no scorekeeping. Prior to 13, and they have sort of the rights of the children, what the children's rights are in sport, and those include that they have the right to choose a lot of different sports. They don't have to specialize early. And Norway, if you know anything about the winter sports, they win a substantially larger percentage of the medals than they should based on the size of their country. So I think that Norway is doing a lot of things right. And I think encouraging athletes to try multiple sports when they're young is smart for a lot of reasons. One of the primary reasons is sort of what I said just a second ago, which is I might drop little Johnny off at soccer, but little Johnny might not like soccer. And if I never give him a chance to play hockey or to play lacrosse or to play flag football or to do gymnastics, how in the world would I expect him to find a sport that he's going to love enough to commit to at a level that would give him a chance to play at a high level? Right. So people who are specializing early, it's because they expect that they're going to play at an elite level. But if I, you know, if I choose the wrong sport, I don't even know how big the child's going to be. I don't even know what their physique's going to look like. You know, I might say, I want you to be a professional football player. And then the poor child only ends up being like 5'10 and 180 pounds. <laughs> professional football is not in the cards. You know, so I think there's that piece of it. The other piece that I think is really important for people to think about is the incredible value of cross-training across sports. So when you think of team sports, team sports rely on a lot of the same principles. So it's about movement off the ball or movement off the puck or movement into space when you're not the person that's you know carrying the ball or whatever it might be. It's about space. It's about time. It's about tactics where you're trying to get open. It's about fainting, you know, faking, having moves, those kinds of things. And 
the translation between basketball, lacrosse, field hockey, soccer, those sports have so much in common that children can benefit tactically, cognitively from being exposed to multiple sports. The other thing that's important is cross-training that's just about the physical, right? So people who are elite cyclists, I'm sure that it's not only cycling that they do, right? They do running, maybe swimming. It's, it's a variety of training before you specialize, right? Ultimately, you may end up specializing, but you still need that breadth of training because it develops the whole person. At a young age, when we're talking five, six, seven-year-olds, these children are just trying to develop fundamental movement skills. And if we expose them to a variety of movement scenarios, they will become more coordinated little athletes when they're nine and 10, which then allows them to have success in whichever sport they choose, whether it's hockey or soccer or whatever it might be. And then the last thing I'll just say is the risk of overtraining and burnout. For kids who specialize early, that's a real concern. And so there are a lot of children who specialize early and they end up leaving the sport at a fairly early age and don't come back to it. And they don't have skill sets that allow them to pick up other forms of physical activity. So as a kinesiologist, I want people to be physically active as adults. And so to do that, I want them to have exposure to a variety of sports. They can, they can pursue some if they want to. They could play collegiately. They could play professionally. But even then, when you stop playing that sport, I want you to have other sports to be able to turn to because you're skillful at those other activities as well. I think that that's such a good point. And even for adults, like there's a lot of people who listen to this that are cyclists and they are afraid. And, and sometimes I fall into this category. I'm afraid to walk away from the bike and go do a different sport. And it actually takes confidence to be able to say, no, no, I need to do other sports and this is going to help me on the bike. But it's hard to do that sometimes. And kids might feel the same way. Yeah, I think so. But I mean, I think, you know, the way that sports used to exist in this country is that they were seasonal. So it used to be that football was played in the fall, and then I'm just doing the main sports. Basketball was played in the winter, and baseball and softball were played in the spring, right? Now you add soccer in there, you add tennis in there, you got all these different sports, volleyball, you got all these different sports, but they used to each have their own season. And so you would have kids in high school who played three different sports, who maybe lettered in three different sports. And that can still happen in the school setting, but in the clubs, that's not how it's working. So in the club, the way that sports exist in the club programs in the United States is that they're almost all year round. So if you're playing soccer and you're playing club soccer, you're on a team that has 10 or 12 weeks in the fall and 10 or 12 weeks in the spring. And then usually you also play in the wintertime. You might move to indoor soccer, but you also play for the two months in the wintertime. And then often you also go to summer camps in the summer. And so you play two or three weeks in the summer. And so children aren't taking any kind of breaks from those sports. And that's part of why they you know, ultimately burn out on them. But the same is true for adults. And if you've done it before, Sonia, you've probably recognized the benefits of taking a break from your sport and doing something different. Now, not, not so different that you detrain completely, right? But just different enough so it's a break. So, you know, a road cyclist who spends some time on a mountain bike, that's just different. It's different scenery. I mean, but you're not losing any fitness and you're getting a break from sort of the routine that can maybe get old sometimes. If you're a cyclist and you could swim for a while, if you're a cyclist and you could jog for a while or even play adult league soccer, do something really crazy, you know, and just get out there and run around in different movement patterns. But then when you come back to your bike, my guess is that you're re-energized and you're more committed than ever. So true. Let's talk about fun. In your book, you said that kids drop out, 40% of kids drop out because it's not fun. There's lots of things that can take fun out of the game. You mentioned uh, Norway not keeping score. I think you said it was Norway until age 13. Yep. Um, we kind of alluded to the pressure of being a kid that's doing early specialization. What are some other ways that fun gets taken out of the game? And how can we make sure that it stays fun? Because hard work isn't always fun. Yeah. A coaching colleague of mine just shared this with me the other day. So I, I can't take credit for it, but I absolutely love it. Four L's to help you remember ways you can take the fun out of sport. Okay, the four L's. The first one, lectures. So there are a lot of coaches who like to hear themselves talk. They bring in a group of 10-year-olds and they talk to them for 10, 15 minutes, right? Our rule of thumb, thumb from a coaching education point of view, you got 60 seconds. I'll give you two minutes if it's a complex, a complex activity you want to have them do. But if you're taking 5, 10, 15 minutes to tell the athletes what you'd like to see happen, you've lost them, all right, and you have taken the fun out of it. The second L is laps. 
don't ever use physical activity as a form of punishment, please. Don't have them run laps because you don't think they're listening. Don't have them run laps because they're not attending to your activity. If they're not attending to your activity, you're the one who should be running because you've designed an activity that is so boring that children who came out here to have fun can't even participate, right? So self-reflect. If, they, if it looks like they're not engaged in your activity, change the activity. If you're unwilling to change the activity, then you're going to take the fun out of the game for them. And if you punish them for not paying attention to a boring game by making them run laps, then you're taking the fun out of being there completely. The third one is lines. Okay, and, and maybe this doesn't make sense um, when you think of it relative to cycling, but when you think of it relative, I've seen, I've seen people use lines of 10 kids for golf putting. Why would you put 10 kids in a line to take turns putting one at a time, right? Like that is so not fun. We're on a putting green. Everybody can putt at the same time, you know, like it's insane. But every, you know, I drive by soccer fields and you got 10 people in line taking a shot one at a time, Right. The last one, which is the one that makes me laugh, is the L for elimination. So elimination, <laughs> if you will, right? So don't use activities that eliminate players. Don't play games where the weakest people get knocked out and they don't get to get back in until the whole game is over, right? So if you're running a practice, if there's a game where people get tagged and so they, if it's a tag game, you tag them, doesn't mean they go out and they never come back in. Maybe go means they go out and they, I don't know, just do five jumping jacks. And I'm not saying that as a punishment. I'm just saying something silly and active, and that earns you the right just to get back in the game. And then you get back in the game. So the four L's to avoid, if you can avoid those things, then you can help. You know, that's a way, I guess that's a little tricky. So the way to keep the fun in the game, if you're the coach, look at the athletes. If they are having fun, then you're doing the right thing. Keep doing it. You know, do those games where the kids are having fun and they're engaged. So if someone's listening and they're a coach and they're they're like, well, they're not paying attention. I've tried doing all these different types of drills to make it more fun. Johnny is talking nonstop. Like, how do I maintain discipline in this group of, of rowdy kids? Yeah. And in, in my experience, if the games are fun enough, there is no discipline required. You know, the games should be changed. You could imagine that each activity should be played for about as many minutes as the kid is old. So if you're working with five-year-olds, five minutes of activity is enough, you move on to something else. If you're working with 10-year-olds, 10 minutes is enough. If you're working with 15-year-olds, 15 minutes is about enough, and then you need to change something. You could change a rule to make it more challenging. You could switch up the teams, you know, for some variety. But you want to make sure that your activities are fun and engaging, but don't expect them to last 60 minutes or even 20 minutes or 30 minutes, right? Every game gets boring after a while if, if something doesn't change. So the best coaches in the world, if you see them, well, the best coaches in your recreation league are the ones where they run a practice and there is no discipline required. The activities are changing over quickly. The activities teach the kids the game. So the coach isn't trying to teach. He's trying to, he or she is trying to set up activities that themselves teach the game. And the children leave the practice and they tell their parents what fun they had and that they can't wait to come back. And when do they get to come back again? Yeah, so... It seems like a lot of kids will play sports. Maybe they'll play until the end of high school. And if they don't move on to playing college level, they'll just quit. Or even athletes that play college level, they're like, well, especially if it's a team sport, well, there's nowhere for me to go. I, I'm not going to go play pro. So they just quit completely. And I can't tell you how many adults I've talked to who later in life, they actually find an individual sport like cycling. But why do people quit playing whenever they love the game so much? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think you're hitting on it right in exactly what you said. So if if the love of the game that you just mentioned changes into I'm doing it because I'm on a college scholarship or I'm doing it because I have hopes of playing professionally, well, then when the scholarship is gone or the hopes for playing professionally dissipate, then why am I playing? If you're going to stick with something, you have to be doing it because you love it, because you get joy, because you're intrinsically motivated to do it. And when the purpose for playing switches over to be because I'm playing to win or I'm playing for money or I'm playing for a scholarship or I'm playing for my to better my career, then when you're not getting those tangible rewards for your participation, you can't figure out why you would do it. You can't figure out why you would, would play. I'll tell you just a really quick story. So this was told to me. It's just a metaphor to try to make this point. And I'll tell it really quick. So I won't, I won't add all the stuff that makes it more exciting. But 
So imagine that there's this man, he lives in this beautiful house, it has beautiful windows, right next to him is an empty baseball lot. Kids come over to play baseball every Saturday. Well, the kids start getting bigger and stronger, well, eventually a kid puts a baseball through the man's beautiful windows. Well, the man's not going to ask the kids to pay for the window, but he's still like, man, that's like a, you know, $150 I got to pay to fix that. So he figures it out. What am I going to do to get those kids to quit playing baseball in that lot so they don't break my windows? Well, he t- says to them, if you come next Saturday, I'll give you a dollar each. Says that again the next week. You come next Saturday, I'll give you a dollar each. Does it three times. He's out, whatever, 60 bucks, right? When he stops paying them the money, the kids don't come anymore. It's the perfect analogy. Because he switched for them their reason for playing. They weren't playing for fun anymore. They were playing for the dollar. If I'm not going to get the dollar, then why should I play? You know, so the, the question you started with, I think, was, you know, more about how do we keep people physically engaged? Well, I think as a society, we need to do a better job of providing clear avenues for people to maintain their physical activity into adulthood. And as a society, we need to keep physical education in the schools with the purpose not of teaching them to be athletes, but of teaching them to be lifelong physical activity participants. So physical education in the schools, I mean, as you know, a lot of schools, they've done a great job of incorporating things like mountain biking and cycling and running and yoga and aerobic dance and activities that you can continue into adulthood and are irrespective of a sport career. And so I think, you know, it ties into your specialization question too, but the more breadth of exposure we give people, the more that even if, even if they do choose to go one direction in in college sports and, and their career ends, but, oh yeah, I used to love tennis and let me get back to that, you know, so we give them some breadth. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up of whenever you start making money for your, at your sport as a professional, because I went through that transition myself and I've been a pro writer for 16 years and it has, it's ebbed and flowed. And I know lots of women and men who have become young professionals and then it gets really hard and then they just give up and then they quit cycling altogether. So maintaining that perspective, and even if you're not doing it for the money, like people take themselves very, very seriously because we put in a lot of work into what we do and making sure that you're going back to the very beginning of what we talked to in this podcast, focusing on getting better every day instead of focusing on being the best compared to everybody else is so, so important. And it's really easy to lose focus whenever there's shiny things. And like, you get like more Instagram followers, or you get like money, or you get like on the front page of a magazine and like not letting that extrinsic or external validation be what drives you and learning to have a healthy relationship with that. Yeah, I think that's a great comment. I mean, that sense of intrinsic joy that you get from being better today than you were yesterday, right? From improving, from making some goal, but but the goals... You know, if I was an elite cyclist, I hope that I would set my goals as sort of more training goals than competition goals. I mean, the training goals are designed maybe to get the competition goals, but I have to have joy in the training. If there's no joy in the training, then like you said, when the competitions are no longer relevant, then you just stop. But boy, I could I could still find joy in, in training. I mean, cycling is one of the most enjoyable activities there is. You can go all over the whole world on a bike. You know, there's so many things that you can do and so much you can see from a bicycle. So it saddens me actually to hear about or to think about elite cyclists then not finding joy on a bike anymore. You know, that's just like, oh, that's just so that's so sad to think about. And it's been really interesting. I'm kind of off topic now, but with the whole COVID-19 pandemic this year, there hasn't been very many events. And a lot of people that rely on the race or the event for that external validation, like I've done this, I'm I'm still like good they don't have that anymore to rely on. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens next year or whenever competition comes back. But I've seen some people who have been able to look at this as a positive thing. Like I've been so focused on this for 20 years. I've been a cyclist. I've been training. I'm going to take this time to to change it up. Like you said, I'm going to go bikepacking. I'm going to go change sports. I'm going to enjoy this time. That way I can still maintain my love of it, even though I don't have the shiny thing that I'm chasing after. Oh, that's such a great example. I mean, I, I love that, thinking about that. You know, and, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic is terrible in so many ways, but there are a few good things that have come out of it. And I think that that example is one. I, I see a lot more people out walking than ever before. I used to feel like it was my, like my family was the only family walking around the park. That's not true anymore. You know, and I think people are sort of reexamining how they've prioritized their days. And, you know, with this dramatic change that's affected all of us at the same time, 
people are sort of pursuing other avenues for finding fun. And, and that's so important right now is to find things that bring you joy. So I kind of talked about trophies and shiny things. And I remember whenever I played youth sports, like we all got a trophy at the end of the year. And like, I hear the narrative of like, people shouldn't be getting and not everybody gets a medal, not everybody gets a trophy. What's a responsible way of using trophies or the shiny thing to reward a kid for their performance or participation? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think the key with rewards, shiny things, is to make sure that you give thought to what the message is that you want it to convey. So if the message is, I'm just glad you participated. I'm just glad you were here. We're just so glad that you played eight weeks of soccer with us at our club. Then I should give them a participation award, right? I would argue it shouldn't be something shiny that ends up on the back of their desk and then they can't even remember what it was for, you know, a few seasons in the future. If I owned a soccer club, my thing at the end of that would be some sort of a little patch or something or something that could go on a keychain that actually said Sharks 2020, you know, something that just reminded them and then I would have my club name underneath it, right? So it would be something that reminded them that, hey, you played on the Sharks this season, you played on the you know, the bats the next season, you played on the hedgehogs the next season, whatever, that reminded them that they were a member of my club and also congratulated them on participating for the season. If I'm going to use trophies or awards in another way where not everybody's going to get them, then I think what's most important is that you, again, think about what you want it to reinforce. I'll give you an example. At some schools, they have like cross-country seasons, and at the end of the season, they have an athletics awards day, and they oftentimes give an award to the best runner female and the best runner male. And I just think, what a waste of an opportunity. The best runner female and the best runner in the males already knows that they're the fastest. They've won the, they've won the meets, they've won the events, and I'm not reinforcing anything for them. And I'm not reinforcing anything for anybody else because the other runners aren't going to be the best, right? Like next season, assuming they sort of stay where they are, they're not going to be the best, but they could be the best if they worked harder. They could be the best if they, you know, put in the most effort at practices. They could help my team the most if they were the most supportive runner on our team. And so if I'm the coach and I'm using trophies or awards at the end of the season, I want those to reinforce the behaviors that are within the athlete's control and that will help make the athlete or the team better going forward. So I don't want to just identify the best athlete. I want to identify the hardest worker. I want to identify the person who came back from adversity. I want to identify the person who was most supportive of his or her teammates. Because by doing that, if somebody wants an award next year, then they're going to change their behavior in this really positive way that helps the team. Yeah. I, Does that they, make sense? Yeah. And actually, at some of the bike races I've done, they've given out awards for different things other than who was the fastest, especially because some of the races I do are like 10 days long. And there's a lot of character building that happens during that mm -hmm. time. And it's been really cool to see some of the events do that. That way, you're not just rewarding the person for going fast on their bike. Oh, I think that's so important. And that's so neat. That's so neat to hear about. I mean, because then it makes it so that everybody can feel, you know, Everybody has the potential to be recognized for their success in that event. Yeah. So I'm going to change subjects. And this is a big topic, which is why I left a bunch of time for it. Gender construct in sports. In your book, you've talked about the competitiveness, girls relative to girls and boys versus boys. Um, like in that running example, which we can talk about, we, you talked about female lack of female coaches. So I'm just going to hand you the ball and you can take it from here. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important things for me to say is that if we look at men and women, boys and girls, on average, there are not real differences in their approach to sport that we can measure, right? So the the average, you know, so you're sort of thinking about a bell-shaped curve, right? So there's a bell-shaped curve of, say, say, competitiveness is the variable that I want to put on this curve. Well, if I put a curve for girls and I put a curve for boys, there will be so much overlap that they'll be essentially indistinguishable. Now, there may be some ultra-competitive boys and maybe some ultra-not-competitive girls, but the overlap is so much that if you just have a team, there's no reason to treat them any differently. Now, that being said, I think all athletes could sort of improve on competitiveness, probably. And there are some real differences between girls and boys in how they we think and how they like to receive feedback. So, 
we do think that, and I say, I'm saying this kind of cautiously because the evidence from this comes from work with adults and in workplace settings, not from sports per se. But if that evidence translates, then it would tell us that young women, if you're going to give them critical feedback, would much prefer and be more motivated if you pull them aside and give it to them privately. Whereas boys and young men are more likely to be motivated if you provide that critical feedback tactfully in a group setting. So I'm being, I'm trying to be really careful with my words. And part of that is because I could say that about boys and there could be four boys on my team who really just cannot handle having any critical feedback given to them in a public setting. But maybe there are 16 on the team where they find that somewhat motivating, right? So you have to, you have to be super careful in how you, like, we don't want to clump them all together and say all girls are the same or all boys are the same because they're just not. You have ultra-competitive women. I'm sure you're one of them, Sonia. And we have ultra-competitive boys, and we have boys who are much less competitive and don't care, you know, don't care about that. So I, think, I really think the most important message is, as a coach, your task is to learn everything you can about the athletes you're working with and to coach each athlete in the way that he or she will most benefit. I think if there are any teachers listening right now, they would certainly relate to that. You know, my task in a classroom isn't to treat them all the same. My task is to figure out what motivates each of them, where each of them is in terms of their current abilities, and to help each of them to develop to as close as they can to their potential in that time that I have with them. Yeah, and it's difficult because I can take this a step further to opportunity in sport for males and females Mm -hmm. and the conversation around that, because what you said is there's really not that much difference, just the way that people generally want to receive feedback might be different. Mm-hmm. But why is it so hard to change girls, number one, staying in sports and girls and women being treated as equals or getting equal opportunity? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a societal issue, right? So we know we have evidence that tells us that little girls are exposed to sport opportunities at us, how do I say this? If you look at the average numbers of sports that little boys are exposed to and little girls are exposed to when they're little, boys are exposed to more different sports than girls. So their parents are enrolling them, enrolling boys in more different sports than they are girls. If you look at the age when little girls and little boys start to play sports, little boys are enrolled in sports earlier than little girls on average. If you look at the development of motor skills in girls, unfortunately, there is some evidence that suggests that little girls are developing their motor skills more slowly than the little boys. Now, that's probably happening because mom or dad isn't playing with the little girls as much as mom or dad is playing with the little boys when they're really little at home, right? So, you know, who has their child outside and is playing catch with them when they're, I mean, I, for me, we had our kids, we had tennis balls hanging off of our carport and I have videotape of them when they're 18 months old trying to hold rackets and walk and trying to whack balls and praying they don't whack each other, you know, but boys and girls, we played silly games that we called like kick and catch in the backyard where I was kicking balls, lobbing them at first, kicking them higher as they got better, uh, more skilled. But I've been throwing balls, rolling balls, tossing balls, you know, playing with balls with my sons and my daughter since they could walk literally. But what that means then is that when my children go to their physical education class, they're more skillful. And so what that means then is that they get more opportunities in their physical education class. And so if you aren't doing that in the same amount with the little girls as the little boys, then when the little girls get to school, they're not going to be as coordinated. They're not going to look as athletic and they're going to get fewer opportunities. And when they have an opportunity to play sports, when they're co-ed especially, if they haven't had as much exposure as the boys, they're not going to look as good. They're not going to feel as good about it or about themselves. So it really, I mean, it's such a big picture question, Sonia, but you know, I'm, I'm hoping that there are some parents listening who have young kids, and I would just so strongly encourage you, if your child being physically active as an adult is important to you, then you should be interacting with them physically right now, when they're 18 months, when they're two, when they're three. You should be playing with them physically and letting them play physically so that they develop their motor coordination so that when you enroll them in formal sport, they are able to adapt and to experience success in those situations. And so then the little girls, if they do that, will hopefully stick with physical activity longer. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize that potentially little girls don't get played with in the same way that little boys get played with because it just depends on your parents, I guess. 
That's but right. I think one of the bigger problems is that many adults, especially North America, are not active as adults, period, so that their kids aren't going to learn to be active because the parents aren't active. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle. It really is. And, you know, and then some of that, I think, goes back to, I mean, again, I think it's a, it's, it's a societal issue. Where I live in Greensboro, North Carolina, it's a wonderful place. I love Greensboro very much. But we are not big enough to support a women's adult soccer league. So for me, when I moved here, still wanting to play soccer, even in my 40s, I wanted to play adult women's soccer, and that option was not available to me in my community. So my choice was to play co-ed soccer, which was defined as a team has to have at least one woman, which is what most of them did. They had 10 men and one woman. So you could play as an adult. I'm a tiny little person. I'm like 5'2". My choice was to either play with men or to not play because soccer doesn't exist for women in my community. And I, I think that's a problem. I think that's a societal problem and a public health problem. I think, I think cities should be investing in opportunities for adult recreation that aren't just, although I love to walk and bike, but they aren't just that. They also include opportunities to continue playing sport for fun, you know, and those opportunities stay broad, even for us as adults. Yeah. And this is sort of a side thing, but this also is a problem in music. I played music in, in a group and wind ensemble all through my life, like in school. And then once school is over, there's no place to play music in a group anymore. And I basically don't play that instrument any, anymore because I enjoy playing in a group. Yeah. Well, and, and sports actually, and maybe music is this way too, to an extent, but sports is actually the way it's designed right now. It almost feels like we're trying to discourage anybody who's not striving for elite level status. We, we're encouraging them to drop out. Recreational opportunities, and soccer is what I know best, but recreational opportunities to play youth soccer for girls peter out unbelievably at the age of 13. And I think the idea is that, well, by then you've decided you're either going to play elite or we don't actually have room for you. Like we don't work hard to keep those little girls in if they just want to keep playing recreationally. Like society has lost interest for some reason, which just makes no sense to me. Yeah. And then there's also the fact of kids having lots of inputs as they get to high school. Like I know for me, I wanted to be a professional soccer player when I was young, but I quit soccer at 13 because when I went to high school, I had to choose, do you want to be in band or do you want to be a soccer player? So I stopped playing soccer so I could be in band. And then I ended up playing varsity tennis instead because that was a different season than band was. So having to make these choices and then like kids that want to focus on being academic or kids that it's just or maybe kids can't make even the C team in high school. Yeah. So that's a problem too. I just, I just wish it were more normative. You know, like I, I wish we could figure out how to make participation in physical activity more normative for 14-year-old girls, for 22-year-old women. You know, like if you think about it, if you think about your community and you walk around outside in your community, chances are there is nobody playing anything. Why in the world not? Why aren't there city parks where, that are safe enough for us to let our children go there and just play with friends, you know, and they could play capture the flag or they could play soccer or whatever. And as they get older, why isn't that still a thing? You know, why isn't, why aren't our city parks just overrun with kids who have come there together without being told to come without having uniforms and they just play? Why don't women play pickup basketball, right? You might see men playing pickup basketball, but there are very few places in this country where you will see women playing pickup basketball. They've just come together to play for fun. It's just, you know, I, I would love it if I could snap my fingers and change the norms. But I, I really think that part of it is things we've talked about today, Sonia, making sure people have fun. They focus on process. We try to keep opportunities available and give um, breadth of exposure so that people can choose ways to be physically active that make them feel good as they develop as young people or move into adulthood. I love it. I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. Where can people find you and find your book? And you've published a number of papers. Yeah, sure. I'm at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. So uncg.edu, you can find me. And my books are available on Amazon. I wrote the book I mentioned earlier, Bring Your A-Game, which is for youth athletes. And then I just recently published a book called Coaching for the Love of the Game, which is written for volunteer coaches in any sport. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. What fun. I really appreciate the chance. 
I hope you guys enjoyed that podcast episode. There was so much to learn and I really just love getting to talk about some of my favorite subjects. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. I know we say this every single show and I know every podcast tells you to do it, but it really does make a big difference. And I would really, really appreciate it if you could take just a few seconds and do that. That's it for me this week. I'm with you on this journey of growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. 